Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 3rd, 2012. The recording features Lori Raider Day, Scott Blackwood, Kat Falls, Todd Goldberg, and Marianne Mohanraj. Now you will hear Lori Raider Day from Roosevelt University provide introductions. All right, welcome to Who Doesn't Want to Be Popular? And you can see how popular we are. <laughs> Sorry about that. Adventures in teaching with, for, around, and through commercial fiction. Uh, first, just a short intro, and then we'll intro the panelists, who you're going to want to know. Oh, hold on. Oh, I'm no. sorry. Are you... Did, no, I, it's my He's fault. Running. I shouldn't have... He's running. Mary. Walk, don't run. She literally sprinted away from she me. She literally Lori. ran. She ran. The sound of your voice was causing her tics. Wow, this is this is really good for all my writerly self doubt. I have to tell you. Uh, Screw her. Everybody. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. It's going to be depressing yeah. over there. You guys are in the right place. Trust me. Gothic? No, they're in ascots. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, God. <clears throat> Uh, okay, that was Sorry, kind of a little bit shattering, actually. <laughs> uh, I will, I will, I will. I, under control, Marianne. Maybe take off your pants. Toni Morrison once said, if there's a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Write the book you want to read. It's advice creative writing teachers give every day. But what if our students want to write about vampires? What do we say? Vampires are so 2010. Let's face it, when young writers enter our classrooms, they sometimes have limited experience with narrative. The stories they know and want to use as a launching point often come from a lifetime of reading and participating in what we know as genre. Genre is a pretty loaded word for an AWP conference. I heard a writer on a panel yesterday do linguistic contortions to keep from admitting that her book had a vampire in it. Um, Maybe you know this already, but genre isn't always up to you. When I was in my MFA program, I got the opportunity to show a few chapters of a manuscript to a published writer outside my program. He said, congratulations, it's a mystery. I didn't know that. Uh, up until that moment, my opinion of reader response theory was that if the reader created the, the text. Did, did she just say reader response I did. theory? I'm, okay. It's okay, it's okay. I'm not that person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> If the reader creates the text, then why doesn't the reader meet me at my fucking desk every morning and finish my thesis for me? I wouldn't exactly say I got the dibs on the first swear word, too. <laughs> They're recording us for AWP. It's awesome. Um, I wouldn't exactly say I was open to outside interpretation at the time. Genre labels have more to do with the book your reader will read with where the booksellers unpack the boxes inside the store than it does with the book you think you've written. That's in part because the line between literary and not is wavy, shaky, broken, and maybe, we hope, disappearing. The epic battle between genre and literary fiction has waged for generations. You've heard about Nathaniel Hawthorne's disdain for the damned mob of scribbling women who vexed him. They vexed him because they were outselling him. It's true. He died in 1864. We don't propose to fix up the peace treaty here today. We're not going to spend a ton of time on genre writers who are now in the canon or canonical writers who dabbled in ghosts, monsters, or dragons, 
or even contemporary writers considered literary who suddenly go off and write a sci-fi dystopian novel and win all the prizes. We hate that guy too. What we do propose is that we have a conversation about bringing popular fiction into the creative writing classroom in ways that allow students to write the stories about which they feel most passionate and to set up classrooms as a place to respect creative work in all forms. So our panelists today, Scott Blackwood, <laughs> oh, you get applause, that's nice, is assistant professor and director of the MFA program in creative writing at Roosevelt University here in Chicago. He is the author of the award-winning short story collection, In the Shadow of Our House, and the novel We Agreed to Meet Just Here, which won the AWP Prize for the novel, the Texas Institute of Letters Award for Best Fiction, and was a finalist for the Penn USA Literary Award for Fiction. Blackwood was named a 2011 Whiting Writers Award recipient. It's a pretty big deal. We're very proud of him. <laughs> and he holds an MFA in creative writing from Texas State University. Cat Falls. Yay! All right, see? Cat <laughs> Falls is the author of the two middle grade, and that's, uh, somebody asked me what that meant, so I'm going to say, tell you, it's for um, children ages 8 to 12. <laughs> So, younger than young adult. Uh, two middle grade sci-fi adventure novels, Dark Life and Riptide, set mostly in the ocean, under the water. The series has deals in 18 international markets. Dark Life was featured on the Today Show as a pick for Al Roker's book club and is in development at Disney with Robert Zemeckis attached to direct. Falls received her MFA in screenwriting from Northwestern University and is now an adjunct lecturer in Northwestern's MFA program in writing for the screen and stage. Her latest book, The Fetch, a dystopian young adult novel, will be released in January 2013. Todd Goldberg. Stand. No, really. It's, oh, that was weird. Is assistant professor and director of the Low Residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at the University of California Riverside's Palm Desert campus. He is the author of nine books of fiction, including two short story collections, Simplify and Other Resort Cities, and several novels, including Living Dead Girl, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, as well as the popular Burn Notice series. Goldberg holds an Goldberg holds, it's hard to say, an MFA in creative writing and literature from Bennington College. Marianne Mohanraj, yeah. now they got it, is the author of the novel and stories Bodies in Motion and nine other titles. Bodies in Motion was a finalist for the Asian American Book Awards, a USA Today notable book, and has been translated into six languages. She founded the World Fantasy Award-winning and Hugo-nominated magazine Strange Horizons. She earned an MFA from Mills College and a PhD from the University of Utah and is now Assistant Clinical Professor of Fiction and Literature and Associate Director of Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I'm Laurie Rader Day. I write crime fiction and teach at my alma mater, Roosevelt University, and also for Story Studio North Shore, a community writing center here in the Chicagoland area. So to get started, maybe a little context. Um, Marianne, you were thinking we might need to do a little defining of terms. People argue about it. Uh, they argue, yeah, <laughs> they do. Um, do you want to define popular and or commercial, or how do you want to start? OK, oh, well, I'm starting. Okay. You're starting. Um, <laughs> this is your idea. OK, well. <laughs> I think So the title of the panel is, I think, Adventures in Commercial Fiction or something like that. Um, and 
And that, that actually surprised me and, and confused me a little bit because I feel like yeah, I was just at a panel yesterday where someone was talking about how there are all these literary novels that are bestsellers, right? If you're talking about something like The Lovely Bones or Michael Shabon's work or um, Margaret Atwood, you know, so that, that certainly seems very commercial. So I think when people use the term commercial, they often mean bad, right? And they are using it as a way to dismiss a certain category of writing, and I just find it um, problematic. And I find the term literary as a as a literary fiction is a, is a kind of frustrating term for me because I feel like there is a lot of mainstream fiction that is literary and a lot that isn't, and there is a lot of genre fiction that is literary and a lot that isn't. So you know, I would I would use Austen as an example of literary romance. Um, and, you know, there are so many examples. I mean, like Michael Shabon, Salman Rushdie, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, you could, you could make a huge list of literary science fiction fantasy writers, George Saunders. Um, and so, I don't know. When, when I'm teaching my students, I'm usually, I often start the class kind of talking about, in this class, I'm okay with you bringing in work in any genre, um, but we are going to be working to make the work better and striving for art. So do you can, who... Do you consider yourself a genre writer, literary writer, genre slash literary, or just a writer? Who wants to take that one? I'll take that one for 500. Awesome, Todd. Uh, I consider myself first and foremost a fashion model. I think a lot of people agree with that. When you have abs like this, you know, you can make a lot of bold statements. <laughs> um, you know, I, I come from a family of writers, so... Um, I didn't ever really understand genre as a kid, uh, per se, but I knew that the first books I ever read, I read because my brother gave them to me, and they were the um, Robert Parker Spencer novels, you know, the Dime Store Spencer novels. They were these nice little paperbacks. Um, but my brother was publishing books uh, by the time he was 20, um, and I wanted to emulate him in most ways other than the way he looks and his general size, um, and a lot of the way he dresses also. Um, and... You know, he had he had written a lot of books, and he had been producing television shows for quite some time. Um, and I said to him, you know, when I was 16 or 17, I think, you know, I want to be an author like you are. And he said, don't be an author, be a writer, so that you always have a different way to tell the stories you want to tell. So you can tell them in fiction, you can tell them in nonfiction, you can tell them in journalism, you can tell them in screenplays for television or for film but always have an outlet for the kinds of, for any story you want to tell. He didn't include poetry then because uh, I don't think he'd ever read me, and I clearly didn't have the countenance of a poet. Um, I didn't have the angst uh, yet, but I do now, so I'm going to put some prose together later and break it up weirdly. Um, so I, I always consider myself a writer because that way I'm allowed to do whatever I want to do, and if I want to throw a ghost into what might otherwise be a literary short story that I'm not afraid to put that ghost in there. Um, and I tend to look at my favorite short story writers from when I, you know, the, the, the writers that first inspired me to really um, write professionally, people like Richard Ford um, or Dennis Johnson, um, you know, where their stories would, if they had been written in the 1950s, would be considered noir. You know, it's a guy with a gun with a problem, and that problem is usually a woman um, and they're going to drive through the Midwest, and eventually there's going to be a, a fight. Um, and so I look at those kinds of stories, and those dirty realist stories, and um, and I think, you know, they're only 
called literary fiction because they appeared in something with the word review at the end of it when they first were published versus in something called gunshots or plots with guns uh, or <laughs> things like that. Um, so I think being just a writer versus a writer of any genre allows you that freedom to do whatever you want to do and not worry about how it's going to be perceived. Um, that being said, I will say that when I've written straight crime fiction, so when I was writing Burn Notice, for instance, I did turn off a lot of what would be my normal literary introspection. No one wants to hear about Michael Weston, you know, pondering the depth of his sadness. They just want him to shoot someone in the fucking leg, you know? <laughs> and, and so I think there is a different approach to mainstream commercial crime fiction than there is to, you know, writing a short story that's going to be in, um, you know, the Kenyan Review. There's, there's a different kind of writing that's involved with that. Anybody else want to take the... Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I just wanted to add to what Tom was saying. That the, the whole... Um, sorry, my voice is going uh, nope. a little bit, but... Um, Did you drink this week? <laughs> no, no, I did not. <laughs> Can't believe you would bring that up. Again. <laughs> um, <laughs> AWP is recording this, but they're not necessarily keeping it. I <laughs> the, um, but I, I, I did want to kind of riff on what you'd said about uh, Dennis Johnson and, and the kind of noir stuff, because uh, you know, in a book with, which I think is his best book, at least in, in my head, uh, Angels, which yeah. is his first novel, it's it, it you know it's the women and children in peril narrative. It's the ex-con narrative trying to, you know, somehow make it back. But yet, no one had ever seen anything like this, uh, you know, combined with his poetic sensibility uh, and, and, and his just exquisite uh, control over language. Um, and, and combining, and there's this incredible scene in that book where, um, where the, uh, Bill Houston is walking down Clark Avenue, right around the corner from where I used to live, uh, and he's contemplating whether or not he should steal a woman's purse. And he's in this kind of drunken revelry, uh, and hate, self-hatred and self-loathing. Uh, and he's, it's so at odds. I mean, you can feel him coming apart even as he's going to steal her purse. And so it's, it gets, you know, genre is always a part of, I think, great fiction. It's always competing for the stage. Uh, and it's driving, it's often driving the story. Now, Johnson's after other things, like you're talking about, and I think that's the, the great thing. It pulls you through it and fools you temporarily into thinking it's, it's something that it isn't, uh, and meaning some, a story that you know and know well, right? And then shifts suddenly, and you're in, you know, terra incognita, you know, you're just, you're cast out there. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that, uh, one, one of the things that, that, John Gardner, I brought my Gardner book. I'm so old school, right? I've got it all marked up from 19, I don't know, 90, 88. Um, but one of the things he talks about is we don't, you know, we don't, uh, we don't often write what we know in the sense of, you know, when we're talking to students about write what you know or that old saw, we, we write the stories we know. Uh, and there's a very big difference. And, you know, I was surprised how much he wrote when I went back and looked at this, how much he wrote about genre and the uses of genre and elevating genre to uh, a higher level so that it, it could do your, your bidding, essentially, and, and, and do your work to get at 
you know, a, a question of maybe what, um, what makes us uh, fully human and the contradictions inherent in that. And so, uh, it was, it was really interesting to see how much he talks about Shakespeare doing that about my favorite book, uh, growing up. Uh, I remember reading, my, my dad reading it to me in, in kindergarten, first grade. It was Robinson Crusoe. And what is Robinson Crusoe? But a series, you know, inherited, um, series of shipwreck stories that, that Defoe got a hold of and knew was in the air. Like everyone was talking about him. He incorporates him in, into the book to get it, you know, kind of, the full experience of what this is like, how this person was deeply changed by this. And um, now we have Castaway, of course, <laughs> with uh, Tom can I, Hanks. Can I say one other thing that just occurred to me? If you, if you ever want to see something fascinating, the first movie version of The Great Gatsby, Gatsby is a Tommy gun-toting gangster, which is what he is in the book, too. Uh, in the first frames of the movie, you can see it on YouTube, the first 15 minutes of the first Great Gatsby movie. And he's literally driving in a car with a gun saying, oh, you dirty rats, I'll get you. Oh, Daisy. Uh, and it's, it's fairly amazing, but when you think about it, you know, the Great Gatsby is a classic noir. It's, uh, the hapless rube. There's the, uh, the guy who's not what he seems to be. There's the femme fatale. There's a murder, of course. There's a gangster, you know, who's controlling everything behind the scenes you don't really see until, you know, towards the very end. And, you know, it's the great American novel, other than the ones we've written, naturally. Um, and I, I'm always fascinated when people talk about how the, you know, there's no history of, of great works of genre. Of course, they're fucktards. But um, when you look at The Great Gatsby, it is the template for the pulp novels that came out after. I mean, it's even the same size as the pulp novels. It's, you know, it's 168 pages or something. Um, now, granted, it's the only pulp novel where there's boats against the current and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think that is that template where you look back and say, why has American fiction tended to go towards people doing some sort of crime? Well, it's right there in that epic novel of the beginning of our you know 20th century. And that's all I'm going to say for the rest of the time here. No, no. It's the only smart thing. No. Um, at at the universities where you teach now, um, is there an institutional approach to admitting and working with students? Is there a policy, or do you just let what happens happen? Can I? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to cover a couple, though, because okay. I, I, so I did my MFA at Mills College, and um, I brought a fantasy novel in um, to my advisor at some point, and she told me that... Um, she didn't know how to critique it and didn't know how to work with it. And I mean, she very earnestly told me this, right? I mean, she was like, she wasn't angry or dismissive or whatever. She was just bewildered, right? And we had this conversation where I sort of, and I was 23 at the time or something, and I, I said something like, well, can you talk about plot and character and theme and structure at least? And like, we'll work on those parts. And she agreed to that. And I sort of wish in retrospect that I had said to her, you know, that well, one, that there were, she probably had read fantasy novels and not thought of them that way. Um, but, but I also kind of wish I could have asked her to read a couple things, right? And so that's, that's a lot of where I come from on this subject overall when I'm, you know, I feel like my students who are bringing in this material, I can't teach them properly unless I know what the excellent examples are that they should be striving towards. Right, and so 
you know, and, and they're going to write it badly. They're going to write it. <laughs> and in fact, I would, I would say they write it, beginning writers of fantasy and science fiction do worse than beginning writers of mainstream prose. And I think it's for the same reason that, like, a lot of compos composition teachers, like, tell their students they can't write abortion papers because there are these incredibly heavy tropes and in the air that the, that the authors, that these young writers have absorbed, right? And it's very, it's difficult to think clearly about them. Um, and so a lot of, and, and so they're, they're churning out stuff with elves and crowns and whatever else, and the, and the instructor's like, oh my god, I don't want to see another elf, I don't want to see another vampire. Um, and I have a great sympathy for that, because often they're written really badly. Um, but, you know, I, I've been in that position of writing the really bad versions of it. When I was doing my MFA, I spent six weeks over the summer at Clarion, an intensive science fiction fantasy writing workshop, and I, my writing was worse. Like, my writing was noticeably worse when I was trying to write fantasy. And I think it was just that these, these huge archetypal tropes were overwhelming my writing. So, I don't know if that's helpful. I hit that. Uh, have you looked online at the trope page? Yeah. Uh, it's one of those rabbit holes you can get lost in, and it's um, looking at tropes in its literature and live TV and film in... It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty much every TV category. Tropes, isn't, it? isn't it called TV tropes? TV, TV. tropes, it yeah. is. And some teenager took my book and found all the tropes and listed it on the page, <laughs> so I have a page. And I've only looked at it once because I realized it was going to freeze me up to yeah. know I had hit some of them. It was, it was really disturbing because I hadn't seen the page until then, and then I had to follow all the tropes through all the examples and read. And it's dangerous because once you're aware of them, the name of the trope is in your mind oh, yeah. while you're starting it. And I'm like, oh, I just did a Cousin Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there's some tropes you want to avoid, like the magical Negro. And yes, the, there are a lot of tropes you, know, you want to avoid. The woman in the refrigerator. <laughs> so, so on, right, so. The magical Negro. Yeah. Oh, oh like from The Shining and the Green Mile. Well, it's, it's oh, the yeah. one. It's the one where the oh, wise God. black <laughs> the wise black person shows yeah. up partway uh -huh. through the text to guide the white person in their adventure. Yes. And uh, my husband directed Aida, and they talked about the magical Negro throughout the process because Aida is very much comes in and changes all of Egypt and Nubia with her presence. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's very magical. Yeah. Anyway, this is getting off the yeah, side. That's the original question. Uh, <laughs> well, I was going to hit one, about, one on there. Do you guys remember what the original question yeah. was? Oh. It's about pro been, your oh, program. Uh, yeah, in the institution in which you teach right now, um, <laughs> how, how do you operate with students? How do you work with them? Can I, can I hit that one? Yes. Um, I'm at Northwestern in the MFA program, which is for screen and stage. So it's not even creative writing uh, prose. But what's interesting is the mix that gets, because when you get playwrights, I'm running a graduate workshop right now, and I have 12 grad students all getting their MFAs. Six are bringing in plays to workshop, and six are bringing in screenplays. And the screenplays tend to be genre-oriented. I have a guy writing a screenplay about zombies. And then the playwrights are very serious, and it makes for a great workshop, because they are pushing each other. And I'm watching the screenplay writers help the playwrights tell a more interesting story, push a little bit for bolder choices instead of keeping it in a living room. And absolutely, the playwrights are pushing the screenplay writers out of cliché, saying, 
come on, can't you do better? And it's a very nice mix, and they're very respectful of the two skills. Um, I, going back to the question previously on are you a genre writer, um, since I write middle grade fiction, uh, I had to learn to do it coming out of screenplays, although I found that it was really similar, uh, keeping my word count down and keeping the page really white so your eye moves fast down it. Uh, but I had read when I started to write my first book, the first middle grade um, book that I wrote and the first book I wrote, I read an interview with James Patterson about how to write genre fiction. And his very first novel, I think, won the Poe. And he said, I've never written in that style again. I now... He's never written again. Well, that's <laughs> there's that. But his rules for writing really highly, highly commercial genre fiction were keep your sentences short, you know, do not care about the language, only care about the story. And as I, and which I actually laughed at when I read it, and then I'm starting to write aiming my work at 11-year-old boys, um, and boys in particular, who don't read, and I realized I, to hit that, had to keep those words in mind. I had to keep my word count down, first off, because they only want a novel that's 60,000 words, but also because boys don't want to see a big chunk of black text, and they don't want all the literary descriptions of a world, which is hard when you're doing science fiction because you want to spend your words on creating the world, but they won't read it. They'll skip that part. So it is interesting that children's fiction tends to be written like genre fiction even when you're not trying to, when you're trying to keep it with more interesting language. It's hard because you still get your short sentences. Can I answer the <coughs> institutional question? Um, the, in terms of the institutional ability to uh, take students and, and that sort of thing that are writing genre fiction, when I started the low residency program, I'm the first director of the program, so I, I got to imprint it with what my views were. Um, and I, what, what's fortunate is that UC Riverside, the main campus MFA program, also is the home of the Eaton Collection of Science Fiction. Um, which is the largest collection of uh, science fiction in a library anywhere in the country. And they have an annual uh, festival that I never attend. Um, <laughs> but I knew, uh, coming from my own MFA experience, that uh, I didn't like students being told what they couldn't write. You know, there were, there were students who were told that they couldn't work on novels in the program that I was in, which is, you know, it's absurd. Um, you can write whatever you want to write. You're going to pay $35,000 and someone's going to tell you what you can't write? It's just absolutely crazy to me. Um, and so I knew when I was starting this program that we were going to be open to any kind of genre fiction that we could help people with. If they wanted to write uh, literary fiction, they could do that. And also it's, it's uh, for the performing arts as well and nonfiction and poetry. Um, so there's screenwriters and playwrights as well. And if you're writing screenplays, you have to be open to commercial stuff. Otherwise, everything's going to be about a Frenchman sitting in a room staring at a potato wondering about, you know, the Venusian Wars or something. And, you know, no one wants to, no one wants to see that. No one wants to read that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I knew that, you know, if, if someone sends in a script that's a, a spec Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 15 years ago that they've been hoarding all these years, if it's good, we can teach them to turn that Buffy spec into, uh, you know, a, a Mad Men spec just by changing some things around. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we had to be open to getting thrillers. Um, we had to be o o both in screenplays and in, and in fiction. And so I, I made sure to hire faculty that were open to that same thing. 
and to make sure that the students that were coming in that were writing literary fiction were going to get a broad base of you know what it took to be a commercial writer as well. Now we did a, a panel in Denver a couple years ago on the same thing where it was five writers and the gentleman in the, in the fourth row there, Anthony Neil, Neil Smith was there as well. Five male writers. Five male writers, all very attractive, including Stephen Graham Jones, so handsome. Um, handsome. And you know, we we were talking about the ability to write um, commercial fiction and genre fiction in the academy, as it were. And there was a guy who said, you know, how can you, how dare you besmirch the the honor of the word? You know, how how can you get away with that in in the world? <laughs> And I, I remember saying to him, you talk like someone who hasn't been inside of a Barnes & Noble in the last 20 years. You know, this is what people actually fucking read. And the, the, the most important book for the person who's going to be in your MFA program in seven years is the Harry Potter book that they read, you know, seven years previously. And you have to start understanding that, you know, the kids that are going to come into MFA programs that are going to be 23 or 24 or 25 years old are coming from a history of reading a lot of fantasy, a lot of crime. They're watching a lot more television. They're reading stuff on their, their their phones and whatnot. And it's not all going to be about the dark night of the human soul. It's going to be about people with guns and people with fangs. And you had to start changing for that. And what I think you're finding more and more often is that these programs, uh, not just like my own, but you, across the country are popping up that are more specialized because people are starting to realize that either you are ahead of the curve or you are the curve. And that means you have to start opening up the opportunity for people to write what they want to fucking write in MFA programs and not just, you know, over and over again, write minimalist short fiction. I, yeah, all right. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to give Scott Blackwood a chance here because I know a little bit about his MFA program. He's also the director of his program. I would say they're a little more hesitant than that. Um. No. No? No. Not Liar. hesitant. Liar. Um, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, that people need to write the story that they want to write, but what I've found, too, is that they, they haven't often read that widely, so the stories they know are pretty limited. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to persuade them uh, that there are stories that can combine elements that they they like or have maybe were really captured by early on and with with that more internal strife right um, I mean one of the one of the interesting things and, I, and I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan and I loved you know power of myth and the whole idea of the hero's journey but that's been preached and preached the hero's journey to the point where <clears throat> what I found was when people would bring in you know what would be called genre fiction or whatever um, they were so they were adhering to the hero's journey and that, by God, we're going to have a hero's journey here, you know, without recognizing that all the, you know, all the tension can't come from the outside. It can't be, you know, uh, conflict imposed on the character uh, for it to work. Otherwise, you know, readers run away if there's not a human, a deeply human element and, and internal strife and things internally that are, you know, uh, where, where change is, is possible. Um, so... But I've, but I've changed my mind over the past four years of directing the Roosevelt program. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me was the success of a couple of students. And uh, in in they were admitted. I was worried about them because they were, they, you know, go back to the TV tropes. They were pretty much in 
in that world. I mean, totally predictable. I could predict, you know, within pages of what, or sometimes many chapters ahead, what's going to happen. Um, and so they weren't taking the materials of genre and using them in a way that's surprising and unique and developing characters that were unique and, 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 and responded to the outside world in unique ways. Um, that would engage a reader. I don't care if the, you know, my, my, uh, I have a six-year-old daughter and a, and a 20-year-old daughter. And, um, you know, the six-year-old is reading, or we're reading Harry Potter to her, and she can handle complex things. So I think we often, uh, underestimate you know, how sophisticated readers are. Uh, she's on Harry Potter 4 now, by the way. Um, but the, the thing about Harry Potter is there's internal strife. There's, you know, these are, these are conflicts that they're, you know, that, that 12 year olds and are going through and 13 year olds and 14 year olds. Um, so, uh, these two examples, I'll, I'll just call them, uh, for anonymity sake, uh, A and K. Um, <laughs> uh, student A came in, a strong writer could command a sentence and knew uh, how to interest someone in a scene, uh, but he was uh, he was writing very fast. He wrote three novels while he was at Roosevelt in two and a half years. That's moving, and that's not socially engaging. <laughs> but not, not necessarily recommended. But but the thing was that um, he was trying. I mean, he was really trying to. Uh, capture an audience. I mean, he, he was very specific about what he wanted to do. He had a noir novel, and then he had, uh, very interestingly, he decided that he would write a fantasy sci-fi novel that was about a 14-year-old girl. Now, uh, A didn't know very much about 14-year-old girls, let's just be honest. Didn't know any girls. He didn't, okay. <laughs> we can go there too. He didn't, uh, he didn't know any girls. So uh, it was it was really interesting <laughs> watching him strut, and I was his thesis advisor. So we worked on. He presented the basic story outline of the hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey, to this odd, this planet in which uh, girls played and women played a minor role. They were very male dominant, and you know you, you could see the reversals coming, right? But he didn't understand what fourteen-year-old girls struggle with in this world. So you had, you know, he had to clearly, you know, as we were getting into it, he wasn't tying into those conflicts, the the contradictions that are going on, you know, uh, in, in, inside the student. So initially, I was kind of put off by it because it was so surface, um, and I worried about that. But then it began to change, and we we focused on the the, the dissonance, the internal dissonance of a character, um, and how the out outside forces were going to stir those things up and, and force her to, to uh, be in a position of, of changing. And he took off with it. It, was, it, it ended up being a 375-page novel uh, that was, you know, was actually, I, 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 had, I uh, was shocked and amazed that he pulled this off. Engaging. The student K um, was in my first two workshops and literally by the end of the first two, and, and we, we, we talked about form, we talked about, uh, tension within sentences, with paragraphs, and, you know, those kind of things. And, and she wasn't getting it. And, and I, I just would beat my head against the wall trying to figure, how can, you know, how can I approach this? What's a new way? Um, and I, and I was so worried that, that the thesis was not going to come together because it was so predictable, uh, you know, just cliche after cliche. Something happened. Though in the middle of that writing, the more we focused on, again, it was a coming-of-age story uh, about a camp, 
a summer camp, and, and this, this girl's coming of age at 12 or 11, um, and it was, you know, it was TV tropes, TV, I mean, after-school specials, those of you who remember after-school specials, um, you know, again and again and again, but then we found something in that character that was quirky, that was contradictory, and the push-pull of, of, of movement, and that changed everything because it affected the plot. What would she do next? Well, this contradiction is pushing her this way, and then unexpected things began to happen. And then another unexpected thing. And so it was amazing watching her grow. And she produced, a, you know, a really pretty amazing, I, I would call it the recovery thesis, right? She suddenly is off in these directions I couldn't predict and, and produces something that, that is worthwhile. I don't know if it will ever be published. I really don't. But she felt like, and, and she knew internally that she understood story and structure and what made a, a novel work. And if you got that, you don't need much else. So, anyway, two success stories anyway. I read some of that early K business. Um, how do you help prepare the other students in the room to help someone with a book in a genre that they don't read? It was young adult. I had trouble helping her. Oh, are you asking me? Well, or? anyone. Anyone can jump in. So, so one thing I will do is try to remind them of... Um, of things that they probably have read that they are not thinking of as part of that genre, right? So, um, so yours was young adult, right? So that one. That's, oh, oh, oh yeah, so that one in story. particular. So, I mean, so I mean, there there's all kinds of classic examples that they probably ran into at some point, even even including um, was it was Treasure Island that was the no yours was um, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe, right? I mean. Um, I guess Treasure Island is more what I was thinking of as a <laughs> as a boy's adventure story kind of thing, and and um, young adult. I, and I, and again, I, I guess I I keep invoking the the great examples, right? So if my student is trying to write a, a bad imitation of Robert Jordan, right, who is in in himself a very popular but bad imitation of Tolkien, right, I will I will not reference Robert Jordan, right? I'm going to push them to the Tolkien, right, and I may even bring in examples for them to look at. Um, so they see what they ought to be aspiring towards. Like, and they may never have read the Tolkien, right? I mean, they may have only encountered the the bad imitations, um, which is which is something you were talking about. They've they've only encountered, and they've, you know, like they. I think one of the questions we have to ask is why are they so drawn to that material, right? Whether it is the the tropes of fantasy, the kings and the quests and the hero's journey, like if that's what's speaking to them, or if it's the noir, the woman to protect and the gun and whatever, you know, like. Those are really powerful, right? Why is romance 50% of the fiction market? Um, what is what is leading so many people to read so many copies of that? And so that's what I spend a lot of time talking about is like, what is it in this story that is drawing you here? What is the core that you want to protect and work with? Um, and, you know, can you shed some of the magic rings and the, you know, and the et cetera stuff that's, that's you know. Can, can I get that one too? Yeah. That's it. It is a good question because... The playwrights didn't know how to look at the screenplay writer's work, how to critique it. They were worried. Um, but, of course, the core of telling a good story are all the basics of a character arc. And But but more than that, because of their worries, we talked about what genre is, especially for film, but it is for books also. And it is the promise of a certain emotional experience. Each genre you're drawn to because you know what the story is going to be and you know you're going to feel a certain way, whether it's horror 
or in the case of science fiction fantasy, a sense of awe at another world. And once you know that's the emotion you're trying to evoke in the reader of the screenplay or the viewer, it was a lot easier for the people who were not writing genre fiction to see what the author's intent was so that they could help craft a scene that would evoke that in the listener. And it was all about learning what the genre fiction writer was trying to do. And it's just to say I'm trying to tell a good story is not helpful for the other people in the workshop so that they can help you. But once it got very specific is, I want to scare the pants off someone, then they could look at the elements within a scene and say, well, you're not making use of setting. You're not making use of the character's worst nightmare. So it was helpful that way. May I respond? Yes. Uh, I guess I can because I'm on the panel. Um, you know, I, I think the onus is not on the students to read up on the genre that their classmate is writing in. It's the onus is on me to have taught every single person in that class well enough that it doesn't matter if you're writing crime fiction or horror fiction or fantasy or whatever, and the other people are writing literary fiction. Writing is writing. A story is a story. Um, what works in a in literary fiction has to also work in a fantasy novel, um, and that is that the reader has to want to turn the page. Um, and that means that you should be able to, even if the person walks into the class and says, oh, I don't really like to read anything with unicorns or cyborgs, um, that the writing is so good that it doesn't matter, that it captures that reader's attention. So my job as a professor uh, is to provide each and every student with the basis in lectures or in reading or whatever, and to me, for me to talk to them about their own work, that they can see what's important in every single book. Now, does does that happen in every single workshop? Of course not. You know, someone eventually will say, you know, I didn't get it because I didn't realize a unicorn was also a cyborg, um, <laughs> and and that sometimes is a is a result of people just not reading very closely, which can happen in anything where the writer is overriding, and that's generally what happens is that. When there's that disconnect, at least in my classes, between the writers of, you know, basic regular literary fiction where it's a man upset about the sadness he feels for his mother or whatever, um, and then someone who's writing about a unicorn that's a cyborg, it's that, you know, the, the person has spent 45 pages, you know, filling in the backstory of the history of cyborgs, and then on page 15 it says, and then he turned around and he had a horn and he was a unicorn, and the, the other people have lost interest. And it's, it's just simply about, you know, starting your fiction at the last possible moment, getting in and out of scenes, all that stuff that we learn, you know, regularly. Um, but I think it's, it's so important for professors of creative writing to let their students know that they don't need to be the expert. I'm the expert. I need to know it. And if I can guide that classroom discussion and say, okay, no, you, you need to think about this and this and this, then it opens up larger avenues of conversation. Not every single student needs to know about every single genre. I need to have at least a passable knowledge so that I can be a good teacher. So I read all the stuff that I need to read, and then I try and, you know, synthesize that to the students. Um, doesn't always work, naturally. Um, but I think what happens when you have these mixed classes, um, particularly if there's a magical Negro in it, um, <laughs> is that the students begin to have an appreciation for a wide array of literature and they get outside of their comfort zone and then they want to start experimenting. You guys don't know what it's like when, when someone finally reads like an Amy Bender short story and then every story they write after that has a 
talking fingerling potato in it or something. Yeah. And you know, you're like, okay, you're you're going through your bender for your, your period. Okay, let's let's get some realistic fiction for you next. So it's a talking fingerling potato who's driving through Great Falls, you know, and is going to shoot geese. Um, you know, so it's it's our job as teachers to to keep them on a path where they can experiment and then finally find the best way to tell those stories. It's not the other student's job to figure all that stuff out, in my opinion. Can I go ahead? Sorry. Just just as a, an odd anecdote, I guess, is, you know, so Laurie read my AWP bio, which is my very respectable bio, right? And it doesn't mention, and I, I should have given her the other one, right? Because the other one has much more genre stuff, including... I just like, cut it in half. It was really long. Sorry. I know. Well, <laughs> so, but the, you know, like, I, I spent 10 years writing erotica and publishing erotica, and I, I'm far more best-selling in erotica than in anything else, right? And... You know, my, my one of the books... Like, Do you have any of those here, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> On the internet, Amazon carries them. So, but, uh, the, <laughs> but, uh, the... So, and, and I've actually, you know, recently, like this fall, I wanted a fun project, so I started writing a science fiction erotica book. Um, and, and it's like embarrassing to talk about at AWP, right? I have to get over it. Like, people ask, so what are you working on? I'm like, oh, I'm I'm stuck on this literary novel that, you know, like, you know, which I am. That's sitting in a drawer. Um, and I'll come back to it at some point, but I'm having a lot of fun with this. And it's like, it's like two genres, right? And it's like two bad genres, right? Science fiction and erotica. You know, noir is sort of respectable, right? So you can, you can talk about noir. Um, and, but what is, what is fun about it is something Todd was saying is that I can show this to people in my writing workshop. I can show this to um, strangers, and they're like, well, I don't usually like science fiction, but I like this. I don't usually like erotica, but I like this. And, you know, I, I keep, and I hear, I've heard that so much, I'm a little sick of it, but I, what I want to say to them is sort of like, well, you've probably only read the bad stuff. You've probably only encountered <laughs> the bad stuff. There's a lot of really good stuff. Um, so I think that's one of the, if you are working in these areas, I think that's one of the things you should expect to to run into, right, mm -hmm. is that you're, there's a, a whole education process you end up going through over and over and over again. <laughs> so. Mine was a minor tip. If you are running a workshop class where there are more literary writers and more genre writers, just so they can help each other within critique, um, I realized just in the last few weeks that the more literary writers needed just a little help um, looking at the writing, and the biggest issue was metaphor. They were looking at things as being metaphors that actually weren't metaphors. <laughs> well, you know, someone said he walked mechanically across the room, and so they assumed he was a stiff, uptight person. I'm like, no, he really is half mechanic. <laughs> there's a resource that helps with that. If, I mean, specifically... No, that was, that's yeah. it. That's just uh, don't but, take everything at a metaphor level. Well, they, it could so be the, literal. There's a, a... Oh, God, wait. I'm blanking on it. It's a, There's a site that came out of a famous science fiction workshop where they came up with... A, I'm gonna, I'll come up with the name again, where they come up with a whole list of like common science fictional um, issues that come up in the workshop. And that's actually... Oh, that's interesting. And that's actually one of them. Um, the... Where, they would call that a mistake on a science fiction writer's part, that it should be very clear to the reader whether, you know, whether it's metaphorical or whether it's actually... It was actually, clear. It was clear. <laughs> and so... He was made of steel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly the... It, yeah. it was like that. Yeah. And they still were hitting the metaphorical level. I'm like, no, really. Oh, oh I remember. It's called the Turkey City Lexicon. And it's, it's What's the, it called? It's called the Turkey City Lexicon. It's on the web. Turkey? Turkey? Turkey. 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 T-U-R-K-E-Y. It came out of... I don't know, some city in the south, the Turkey City, what, um, um, I can't remember. Anyway, 
but it's it, it's a, a long <laughs> list of things like um, you know, like the idiot plot is when everyone in the story has to be an idiot for the plot to work, and that's and and then. But in science fiction, you have the second order idiot plot, which is where everyone on the planet has to be an idiot for the plot to work, right? And so there there are a bunch of so these are things you want to avoid. These are the things right? you want to avoid, but that that happen a lot, and that you see like the Adam and Eve story is one that like I used to edit a science fiction magazine, and we saw it constantly, it came in over and over and over again, where there's a man and there's a woman, and they're wandering through this blasted landscape, and you have this whole story, and at the end you discover that oh. Oh, this is Adam and Eve, you know, and it's like, and like, it's just, you know, writers think they invented it, right? And they don't know that it's been told many, many, many times. And so it saves you some time. That could be said about most young writers, yeah. that they think they've come up with a great idea. And you're like, yeah, I've seen that every semester. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was thinking about, you know, one of the things that, that happens, of course, you have the vampire series and the zombie series is uh, people think, well, I better get to work on that vampire novel or zombie novel. And, but it's too late, yeah. right? Commercially, if that's, if that's what's driving you to, to get that out, it's long gone. By the time that gets to somebody, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a fad that, that will play out in the publishing world. So uh, that you're just chasing your tail, you know, essentially. And, I, and, and that's what, you know, I talk to students about don't don't get caught up. Write the stories that you want to write, as opposed to what you think will sell. You have no idea what will sell, basically. Can I? So. I used to believe that, <laughs> and and do still. Although there are flukes, and that is, I had this series that Scholastic bought, um, Dark Life, and my agent wanted me before my first novel came out to come up with an idea for the next novel, just in case something didn't go well that I didn't get then stuck and say, I can't write, and said, please come up with a synopsis, and I'll even see if you write a few first couple of chapters if I can sell it. And here's what I want you to write. And I started laughing and thought, okay, tell me what you want me to write, because that's really how it works. You tell me, and I'll be able to write it. And it was he did this thing. He said, I want you to write up. I want you to write a YA next because your readers are going to get older and they can follow you. I thought, okay, that's good advice. And then he went to the paranormal romance thing because of Twilight and all of them. And he said, I'd like you to, instead of just sticking to science fiction, try and get a paranormal element. See if you can get a love triangle. And I'd like the lead this time to be female because YA is far more bought by women girl uh, readers and uh, I just laughed at him. I went, that love triangle, you want two boys and the girl, you know, kind of like Twilight, and laughed at all these limits he put me on. But then it became this really fun writing exercise, given all these limits that were what was selling right now. How could I come up with a story premise that took them and yet pushed them to be something new? And it was a fun writing exercise, and I actually did come up with something that answered everything that he had, and yet is nothing, hopefully, that has been seen, uh, at least in YA fiction. Mermaids? Uh, no, I actually am. Uh, my my uh, homage is to uh, the island of Dr. Moreau. So. But think about mermaids. And then he was able to sell it really, really fast. Mermaids was last year, actually, oh, in YA. There were six mermaid books. Really? Yes, there really were, I including one called Pardon My Fins. And I went, oh, that'd okay. be a worse title. 
Yeah, no, my, my agent just asked, I, I had a mystery thing I was showing him, and he was like, can you make it a woman? And I'm like, I, I wish I could. I really wish I could. But yeah, this was early enough in the process yeah. that it wasn't, can you make that a dog? <laughs> but, but what's interesting is you guys are tapped into the publishing industry, and so the timing is going to be right, whereas for someone who's struggling to get in, I think they're going to be way behind the curve yeah. on that one. So, I mean, that would be my one, uh, you know, one thing. Um, I was remembering, uh, just as kind of a side note to this, but um, when uh, just, uh, Justin Cronin, right, wrote yeah, the yeah. Vampire Series, um, I, I felt so bad for him in the New York Times when they interviewed him because he was put in a position where he had to defend his, his vampire trilogy. He couldn't just write it and... The Passage? And, is yeah, it? yeah. Yeah. The, or the first book, I guess, of a trilogy of some kind. Um, but it, it was just, it was painful to read because he'd been put in a position to defend this. And clearly the writers were, were out to get him. And, uh, he, you know, he kind of stepped in it in the interview because he, he said, uh, well, and this is all in, is a, a piece with all my other work. And it, you know, having read his 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 Pin Hemingway winning book, this was not a piece of that, you know, or that I could see thematically. But he was a, he was going to great pains to do it because he was feeling like shamed, you know. And it's too bad because he's a terrific writer, you know. It's like, wow, how how did this happen? I think it's really, I mean, you know, last last year. Shane, well, I was going to talk about Shane, <laughs> about Shabon and Atwood, right? Was Shabon was last year's guest of honor here? Is that right? Am I remembering mm -hmm. right, Michael Shabon? Or two years ago? I don't know. So a couple. So two years ago. So Shabon was guest of honor here, and Atwood is guest of she honor here. She fell asleep. Okay, <laughs> I did. I was very tired, but but leaving that aside, um, I, I, I fell asleep forty five minutes into the speech. But okay. but um, I but, just thought they should know. but so I I love both of these writers. I think they're brilliant writers, but they have very different attitudes to where their work falls in genre. And I think it's really interesting looking at how they publicly deal with that, in that Shaban is absolutely unabashed. He's like, I'm going to write what I want to write, and if it's going to have golems or superheroes or Frankenstein, all of which are in his novels, um, he's like, that's what I'm going to use. Like, that is absolutely, I'm writing about the Holocaust, Jewish golems are integral to what I want to do, and I'm going to do it, and people are going to cope, and I'm going to win big awards, and, you know, there you go. And Atwood, you know, has written all these wonderful books, but one of them, The Handmaid's Tale, is this dystopian, you know, far future, um, feminist nightmare kind of book, right? And, um, and she won't call it science fiction. And I think it comes from her having, uh, an idea of what science fiction is as being boys in rocket ships and, and, you know, she's not, I would say it comes out of ignorance, really, that she's not aware that like there's a huge tradition of exactly what she's doing, of social science fiction, of feminist fiction that is questioning all of these social tropes. And so, I don't know, I guess this is sort of advice, is sort of like, how are you going to frame your work? How are you going to, once you start writing this and you have to talk about it in the workshop or in the world, um, how are you? how are you going to talk about it? May I say one thing about Margaret Atwood? I think it's a fantastic point. I, I was remembering uh, a horrible experience I once had with Margaret Atwood. <laughs> I was, uh, this was a long time ago. I, I had just graduated college and I had written my senior thesis as an undergraduate on a comparison between uh, Handmaid's Tale and Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, um, which for those of you who haven't read it, is this feminist science fiction novel um, about a woman on the edge of time. <laughs> um, 
It's really good, good title. It's a fantastic book, or at least it was when I read it, you know, in 1993, so it's probably <laughs> dreadful now. Um, at any rate, I'd written this paper, and uh, and I got an A from the, the teacher in the class. I was the only frat boy in the class, you know, women and feminism and literature. I picked up a lot of girls. Um, <laughs> they didn't keep me. Uh, so she was doing a book signing at Dutton's Books in L.A., and uh, I think this is for, like, Alias Grace or something, so it was a long time ago. And so I had my stack of uh, Margaret Atwood books, and again, I was the only guy there. And I, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring my senior thesis with me and show it to her. <laughs> she was a fucking moron. And um, so I, I walk up to her at, at the end of this big line, and I'm showing her all my books. And I said, also, I wrote my senior thesis as a comparison of Handmaid's Tale and Woman on the Edge of Time. And she looks up, and she says, what did you conclude? And I said whatever I said. I don't remember what I said because it was Margaret Atwood was sitting in front of me. <laughs> and she said, you're wrong. And I was like, oh, my God. And then she's like, next. And that I didn't read a Margaret Atwood book for like 10 years after that because I was so upset about it. But I was probably wrong because she clearly written the book. <laughs> but I recently had uh, a student who was writing dystopian fiction read both of those books and uh She's writing dystopian and sort of sci-fi feminist stuff. And she read them and she's like, these feel anachronistic to the 1970s and, you know, I'm a 21st century woman. And I was like, you know what, she's probably right. Um, but she said, I'd never seen anyone actually do this sort of thing. Um, that you can do this in science fiction. You can have these, you know, large societal thoughts about the real world that we live in because both those books, at least somewhat, are about America. Um, and so... Even if she doesn't agree that she's writing science fiction, she's inspiring science fiction writers, and I think that's enough, irrespective of what her original intention was. And I'm still upset about that. <laughs> Le Guin said something mean to me once, and I still haven't gotten over it. So. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from there. Um, Questions? Um, how about one more question here, and then we'll open it up. What advice do you have for writing students who want to slay dragons or vampires in their work who may be feeling a little bit out of it here at AWP or surrounded by poets with uh, bow ties? If anyone's wearing a fucking bow tie in this room, could you please stand up and explain it to me? Is there anyone in a bow tie? <laughs> no. Uh, I have one very simple piece of advice, and that is that writing finds its margin. And if your margin isn't AWP, stop coming. You know, stop wasting your money. There's there's a community out there that will support your writing. Good writing is good writing. Um, I feel like the, the, the students who are writing science fiction or crime or romance, which you didn't bring up, um, briefly. I didn't bring up the mysteries where the cat solves the crime right. either. Well, there's no solving, there's no helping the people who write the fucking cat mysteries. <laughs> cats can't solve crimes. They're fucking cats. Um you, I think that the best thing you, you can tell those students when they come here and they don't they and they don't want to go to the pedagogy of the feminist nonfiction memoir or whatever that they don't find these panels is that your your community exists on the internet for the most part. Um, you will find these people online and you can talk to them about this stuff. And the I think the the fantastic thing about most genre writers is that you can write them and talk to them on the internet. You can email them. It's going to be pretty hard for you to, to email Tim O'Brien and say, I'd like to talk to you briefly about uh, the man you shot, you know, or the things they carried just for a couple minutes. But, you know, if you email me 
and say, I want to talk to you about your second burn notice book. I was like, well, thank God. At long last, I've been discovered. Um, but I think genre writers are far more open to actually talking to uh, aspiring writers because they were in that same place. They didn't have that peer group, particularly if they went to graduate school, and they, they're happy to answer those questions. Um, and, I, and I just think also that the, the sort of... Um, I'm going to say a, a term I learned from listening to Rick Santorum. The sort of elitism that is uh, portrayed against writers of genre fiction that you can find in places like this um, ends up being uh, nullified when you go to the store. You know, that's where the real world is. The real world isn't always at a place like this. The real world is when you look at the LA Times or New York Times bestseller list, and every single book there has a gun or a space alien in it, and you can understand that what you're doing is not marginalized. What you're doing is the most popular form of writing there is. Um, and I think that that has always helped my students when they come to hear, you know, writers at AWP or, or different conferences and they say, what they're saying doesn't appeal to me. Well, what they're saying doesn't appeal to most people, as it happens. What I say to my students is, Writing is hard. It just is hard. And the place you want to get is when you're working in the flow, where all of a sudden you're in a magic space and the writing's just coming. And your whole life should be designed to get to that place. The way you set up your day should be the ideal time for you to write in the right circumstances. And certainly what you're writing should be the easiest access to getting there, where you're in that magic space. And don't make it harder than it is, because the ones whose writing I see stumble, the ones who get stuck, the ones who suddenly have these intricate problems they want you to talk to them for an hour about, are always the ones who are pushing themselves to write what they think they should write, and they get stumbled up on the shoulds. And when you try and unpack all those shoulds and find out what they love and what they read at 1 a.m. and stay up to read instead of going to sleep when they should, it's always their secret passion that they're somehow embarrassed about, like sci-fi erotica. And you say, write that. If you want to try the other thing later, try it later, but write that for now and at least get to the place where you're in the magic flow place and when they start getting there, they don't go back to doing what they think they should be doing. Magic flow sounds like a prostate. Okay, episode. magic flow. <laughs> but the flow that, that flow. athletes talk about when they're in the flow. In the zone. Zone. In, zone. Okay, in the zone. Um, I have Unpacked some specific. should I, is a good line. I, I, agree with, I, I agree with Todd that if AWP isn't working for you, there are some others, and I want to give you some other convention suggestions for science fiction and fantasy specifically, because those are the ones I know about. Um, and, I, and I do come to AWP every couple of years, but I like every year I go to Wisconsin, which is in Madison, Wisconsin, on Memorial Day weekend. Um, it's called Wisconsin. Um, if you Google that in sci-fi convention, it'll come up. And it is amazing. It is a feminist science fiction convention. The conversations are, like, I, I leave panels with my brain racing full of ideas. It's a great group of people. And it's, like, this convention is 9,500 writers, right? And what's great about science fiction conventions, it's 10% writers and 90% readers. And I think that's really valuable to get a chance to go someplace with people who are incredibly enthusiastic about what you're writing and listen to them babble on about why they love it so much, right? I mean, that's inspiring and it's energizing. And if you're a writer, you're kind of a superstar there. So um, 
So, so when does that meet exactly? <laughs> Memorial Day weekend, end of May. So that's my favorite. Um, I can also drive there from Chicago since I live here, which is nice. Um, but other ones I've been to that are really good. If you're in the Boston area, ReaderCon is also a very literary science fiction convention. Um, Minicon in Minneapolis is really good. And there's a new one in the Bay Area called FogCon in San Francisco um, that I'll actually be flying out to, So which is in March, um, so if you're from that region. Um, there are a lot of conventions in science fiction that are more costumey, more media cons, more non-literary, um, which are also fun, but, but these are some of the literary ones. Great if you're a furry. <laughs> if you're a <laughs> and I know about the mystery conferences, so if anybody's interested in those, um, come find me afterward. Um, well, one thing on the, uh, you know, choosing your subject matter or whatever, uh, your obsession, let's say. Um, I think Robert Boswell had a uh, really interesting piece in his... Uh, his collection of essays, The, the Half-Known World, um, about writing. <laughs> he talks about <laughs> himself, you know, in graduate school, trying to write uh, a novel about baseball, which he loves, right? And he, he loves in an, as, with an obsession. And he said that, you know, he kept, he kept trying to write this novel early on in his, in his time there, and the reactions to it were just absolutely, you know, people were just indifferent, and he couldn't figure it out. The, the, except for one guy who was also a baseball fan, loved it, right? Um, but what he what he discovered was he he was totally irrational about that aspect of the book, and he'd gotten away from the things that made readers care about it, you know. And so when I'm talking to, to young writers, that's something I talk about because you know we all have these obsessions. Not everyone that it's kind of like the the rings and the you know you get caught up in the accoutrements in a sense. And don't focus on the things that readers care about. And so that's the thing I focus on a lot because we all carry these obsessions with us. Not everyone wants to hear about them, um, you know, um, in our relationships as well. Yeah. <laughs> I watch a lot of baseball myself. Okay, we're almost out of time. Does anybody have any question they've just been dying to ask the whole time? We have about three minutes. Yeah. Have you found any like favorite texts you like teaching from that help you with this whole genre? In science fiction, there's two books. God, I'm going to blank on the names, but if you, I'll, I'll, they'll come to back to me. So find me afterwards. But they, um, the one is called "Those Who Can," coming from the "Those Who Can't Teach, Do, or Whatever, Do Teach, Whatever." Um, and I, I, I can't remember what the other one is. But they are um, science fiction writers like Nancy Cress, who it gives a short story by them, and then she talks about plot in that short story. Um, so it's a companion volume of essays and famous short stories. Um, and it's really helpful. I've got one thing that I use. Season four of The Wire. <laughs> it's crime fiction. It's YA. It's uh, geopolitical. Um, and it's also television. Um, but it applies to fiction. It applies to nonfiction. It applies to screenwriting. It applies to TV writing as well. Season four of The Wire. Just have your students watch it from beginning to end. And I, I forgot also from the more theory side, like um, Ursula Le Guin has Language of the Night and another book that are that have a bunch of essays about um, more theoretical aspects. And Delaney has a couple of books. Um, I'm blanking on the title, Samuel Delaney, but um, they're dense. Delaney's pretty dense, so it's more for you than for them. But okay, yeah. Um, you guys were talking a lot about grad workshops, and I'm kind of interested in, like, the intro level to fiction. 
limits in writing like mm -hmm. an assignment that's limited is fascinating for the writer and it's usually the assignments like that that are the they're the most resistant to that bring out their most interesting work yeah I, I would be fine with with doing an assignment I've been in classes and I've even you know I've seen classes where they said no fantasy no science fiction and it just it makes the students so sad you know and like <laughs> this is like the one class that they come to with joy and I, I hate to strip that away from them but I mean like so this semester I have one student who's writing zombie stuff and one student undergrads who are and one student who's writing vampire things the zombie stuff is really problematic it is basically slash gore and not much else is going on but I think this like the other students are kind of taking care of it. They are they're they're doing a really good job of pushing him in more interesting directions. And the vampire thing is actually really good. It's like a total vampire pastiche that's doing really interesting things with the genre. So And I, I really believe that, you know, giving five page assignments for a intro workshop and saying all of you are going to write a vampire story, all of you are gonna write a romance, all of you are gonna write something about the dark night of the human soul. <laughs> then what you're doing is you're giving them that freedom to explore a little bit too. And also you don't have to read more than five pages. Yeah. I think that's wise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing uh, I thought of that I, I, you know, I've used successfully, but um, you know, trying to persuade them that, that there's a way to have the uncanny in a story without just going straight mm -hmm. to vampire or whatever. Um, I think of like Shirley Jackson and using uh, a story like The Witch, which is frightening beyond belief and, and has a kind of uncanny feel to it, but is using that to different purposes and, and The Demon Lover and, you know, so many of her stories contain that, you know, some kind of horror that's unspoken and you don't really know exactly what it is. Um, it's kind of a mid-ground to see how, you know, how you can work this in. It really would be, if anyone's looking for a book project, like I think it would be great to have an anthology of literary, really good, really interesting yeah. stories like that um, geared towards the genres that we could use for teaching. So I don't have time, but I'm throwing it out there. Well, that's your assignment. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Uh, remember to say good things about us and your feedback so they'll have more um, popular fiction things next year. Thank you for coming. And thanks to Lori. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.